And uh, a little bit of background is when I grew up, and I'll, I would ask you the same question, Manny. When I when I grew up in public school, I never heard about this holiday, and it was only later on that I began to figure it out. So this is coming up on Friday, and it's a combination of the number 19. And the Emancipation and, Day, right? And June, right. So June 19th, so Juneteenth. So it's a holiday now in 46 states in one capacity or another, and uh, it's growing around the world. I know in, in Africa it's recognized, in Canada it's recognized. You know, it's, it's the official freedom of the, uh, the slaves after the war, is that it? That's exactly what we're going to be talking about. So it's the official date of commemoration of when the slaves in Texas were freed, and we're going to tell that story today. So it's a, it's a increasingly important holiday once people begin to learn about it. So once we talk about Juneteenth, we're also going to talk about, and you mentioned it, the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. And this is a very famous Massachusetts volunteer regiment. It was an all-African-American regiment during the Civil War. In fact, there was a movie that was made about this regiment. So I think it's also appropriate to talk about that that, uh, that group of heroes in connection with Juneteenth. And because I like to put enough material on the table so we can go into some other related topics, because we're, we're commemorating the Juneteenth holiday for Friday, I also just recently posted on Statutes and Stories about the Militia Act of 1862. So I also may want to talk about the Militia Act uh, and as we said, the, the Massachusetts 54th. So if anyone goes, and this is where we remind everybody that you can listen to us live. You can go to on WSQF Blink Radio Statues and Stories Show. There you go. So you can listen to us live. Presumably that's what you're doing now. Or you can listen to the podcast and the Royal Archive. I, I checked. We've got over 40 shows, Manny, believe it or not, that we've got podcasts. And uh, have you have you successfully see, uh, seen them back up on the site? Yes. So Good. I, I, that that took a long there. time. What a mess that was. Because I know you beautifully re-engineered the site with all the new logos, so uh, over 40 podcasts that people can listen to, all dealing with history, right? And uh, the other quick observation is we can also talk about the Anti-Peonage Act of 1867. So that's another word that people may not know too much about. And uh, I'm also going to point out at the end, if we have time, and I encourage people to also go to the website, statutesandstories.com, so you can listen to us live, you can listen to us reported, or you can read the materials that I'm talking about on the website, statutesandstories.com. And what I like to mention about the website is the website is all about primary sources. So it's just great to hear me talking on the radio, and, and you know, I'm a lawyer during the day, and I dabble in history, right? But the, the website is all about the diaries and the letters between the founding fathers and mothers and the Emancipation Proclamation. You can actually read these original sources from about the last hundred years or so, you know, the first hundred years, I should say. And I like, to su I like to suggest as a school choice advocate who wants to get rid of textbooks, you are a perfect alternative to a textbook. You could probably teach a whole history class in several age groups and several grades just using statues and stories as opposed to a damn thumbnail textbook with stupid questions at the end. So there are advantages and disadvantages to textbooks, and I think this material supplements the textbook. Ah, oh, come and on, man. I, I, I agree with you that you know it's, it's important to be well-rounded, and that's another point about statues and stories, the website. We don't sugarcoat the history, so we tell the, the history as it is. And the textbook and, does sugarcoat the history. And we, we can have that discussion. I know on some of your other shows, you, you talk about that. So I don't talk about, for the listeners, I don't talk about modern politics. I talk about you know, the history. But I will tell you that today is a historic day for a couple of reasons, and we don't have to go into too much detail. The market, by the way, uh, was down over 700 points this morning. It wound up up because of uh, announcements that were made by the Fed, so that made interesting news. But the other point about the news today is there was a historic civil rights decision that was reached. And I know people on this station will have different opinions, and they can talk no, about it. Everybody here, uh, everybody here uh, believes in LB, 
uh, GT rights. I mean, come on. No, you can't job discriminate anymore. I mean, you just can't. On, on no matter who the person is, or what they is, what color they are, what color their eyes are, how they dress, you can't even discriminate. I remember I had an employee that I would have discriminated had, had I known because I was appalled by it. Uh, it was about 15 years ago. I had this fantastic employee. But one day I saw him rollerblading on the beach on a day off, you know, and I, it was very early on in the tattoo world. And I couldn't believe the atrocity on his back, corner to corner, shoulder blade to shoulder blade, down to his waist, into his buttocks. And it was devil worshiping stuff, you know. And guess what? He could hide all of that all those years behind the uniform, the shirt. And he was a good employee. And he was a good employee. So that taught me so much. And he, there he was on rollerblade in his bathing suit, you know, enjoying his life. And uh, he never thought I'd trespass him like that. And I just couldn't believe that that was the man I had hired all these years. And I just learned so much from that. You just can't do, you can't discriminate, period, folks. You know, you just got to love people for who they are, the choices they've made. And all you can do is demand that they do a damn good job in defense of your business. Other than that... I think most conservatives will agree that those days are over, man. What the what the Supreme Court did today uh, was uh, was human, was correct, and was legal, and was right. And even though Trump couldn't say so, and that, <laughs> he had a difficulty just saying, "Hey, we live by what they decide on," instead of saying, "I'm in support of their decision," would have been much easier for him. But no, he chose to just say, "I'm just in support of Supreme Court decision. We live by their their edicts." Oh well, okay. What can you do? That's how he talks. Yeah, I'm going to head back to the history, Manny, but amen to what you just said. The name of the case, and this name is going to become familiar because it's a historic decision, is Bostock, B-O-S-T-O-C-K versus Clayton County, Georgia. And it was a 6-3 decision. And uh, the Chief Justice and uh, one of the newer justices, Gorsuch, uh, and I always mispronounce his name, but long story short, this, this is now the law, and in my opinion, it is a good thing. So it is appropriate that we're talking about Juneteenth today, which is a civil rights holiday, and we had an important civil rights decision today. So let's go back in time, and we're going to the time of the Civil War. This is the 1860s. Lincoln, of course, is president, and this is when I mentioned during our show that I always uh, you know, refer to books and materials. So the book that's sitting in front of me, among others, I won't mention too many, is called A New Birth of Freedom, Abraham Lincoln and the Coming of the Civil War. This is by Henry Jaffer, so if anyone wants to put that on their book list, so... So what is the deal with Juneteenth? And I pointed out to everybody that I did not learn about this holiday when I was in school. But the holiday commemorates an important day, and this is in Texas. So Texas, as we know, was, was to the west of, of the, the states that were fighting the Civil War, and there weren't that many Union troops who made it into Texas. It's the battles really didn't take place in Texas. The battles were being fought further to the east. So the date, which is June 19th, is the day that the slaves learned of the Emancipation Proclamation. And, uh, of course, that was an important day for them because that was their freedom. And there are different names that are given to Juneteenth. So one name is Juneteenth, combining June and 19th, but it's also referred to as Juneteenth Independence Day or Freedom Day or America's Second Independence Day because if you know, were slaves, Independence Day, 4th of July, didn't mean anything to you because you were a slave. But Juneteenth was the day that these slaves, and there were about 250,000 slaves in Texas during the Civil War. And uh, once the Union Army came in, and this is the story we're going to be telling, and this is Major General, let me get his name right, Gordon Granger. He comes marching into Galveston, Texas, and that's where the, the story starts, in Galveston, Texas. One of my favorite places in Texas, Galveston. 
Right, and uh, you know, Ed, if he's listening to us, uh, would have had all kinds of information to share because Texans know about this holiday because it has been celebrated in Texas since the 1980s. I think 1980, if not earlier, and uh, you know that it's, it's spread from Texas and it's become more popular over time. And I'm in favor of lots of holidays, especially if you get a day off, right? So, uh, long story short, Gen- General Graham Dranger comes marching into the headquarters in Galveston and Galveston Island area, and uh, he has in his hands General Order Number Three. And I'm going to read you from General Order Number Three. It's very simple, but uh, they basically read to the slaves the Emancipation Proclamation. And General Order Number Three says, "Quote: The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, and of course the Executive of the United States is President Lincoln, all slaves are free." Now, just imagine how that reverberates in the community who may not have even known about what was going on, but they see these Union troops come marching in, and uh, that's difference between night and day if you're now free. So uh, during the 1930s, the Workers' Progress Administration you know, started collecting slave narratives. And you know, if you listen to public radio, and I don't like to mention too many other radio stations. Yeah, don't, don't, don't please, okay? Because okay, you know, yeah. we're the only radio station on the, on the air. You know that. Right. So, but, but the point is that there are events that are done to re- recreate and to save stories and narratives. So there are slave narratives that were created in the 1930s during the Depression. And uh, when you listen to some of these slave narratives of people who were alive in 1865, you know, that, and I'm, I'm quoting now from some of these stories, they spent the night singing and shouting, you know, these uh, formerly enslaved people, uh, and that's what they were, slaves, they're celebrating. So it was a big deal in Texas, and now it's spread around the country. And uh, some other information about uh, the date. So remember that Lincoln was sort of in the difficult situation because, you know, he hasn't even been sworn in as president yet, and the South already starts seceding. And Lincoln, and we could talk about, you know, his different positions and his, his, his politics he had to play during the war. But when he, when he announced that he was going to do the Emancipation Proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation took effect on January 1st, 1863. But he announced in September that we were going to be doing the Emancipation Proclamation. So he announces it in September, giving the southern states advance notice. This is what I'm going to be declaring. And, uh, of course, the southern states didn't agree, and the war continued. So it took effect on January 1st at midnight. And uh, you, know, you can just imagine there's a famous picture, a famous scene of slaves sitting by the candle looking at a clock, waiting for the clock to strike midnight to know that they are now free once that happens. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why Lincoln had to be careful about how the Emancipation Proclamation would apply is because there were four border states. And if anyone wants to check the maps, the border states could have made a big difference in the war had they sided with the South. But the four border states, and I want to get them right, let's see, the four border states were Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. And uh, they tried to stay out of the war, and uh, thankfully they stayed with the Union. But one of the reasons why he didn't want to do too much with the Emancipation Proclamation is because slavery remained in effect in the border states until after the war. So the Emancipation Proclamation was was baby steps that were being taken, and the Emancipation Proclamation did not apply, as as we said, in the border states, and it did not apply to areas that were already under Union control. It only applied to territories that would be conquered by the invading army. Now, when you mean when you mean that, it pl- uh, let the audience know what was being up- implied or applied. So the Emancipation Proclamation says, and it applies in areas as the Union Army comes in. So it would not apply in the border states, and it would not apply in areas that the Union already controlled. It would only apply as 
And, uh, and I don't know all the specifics, but uh, you know, if you go to the website, you can read. It's not too long. You can read the Emancipation Proclamation. And uh, you know, it's an important date in American history. So well, what else can I tell you about the Emancipation Proclamation and, and the holiday? There were about 250,000 slaves in Texas. So we mentioned how Granger comes marching in with about 2,000 troops. And that's effectively what leads to freedom in, in Texas. And the, the, you know, the background here is the Civil War ended when Grant is the lead Union general, and there was just a history special on the History Network about General Grant. But when General Lee surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse to Grant, that ended the war. But the point is that it took several more months for, and actually it wasn't, the, the war ends in 1865, but it ended, I want to say, in April. But Juneteenth isn't until June 19th, so it took several more months after the war ended for the folks in Texas to realize and to be basically liberated by General Gordon Granger and, and his General Order Number 3. So that's a little bit of the background about the holiday. And I also want to mention to you that it was about two months, and you know, this was uh, the last of the Confederate states to learn that the war was over. And that there's some information that some of these uh, slave owners wanted to make sure that they got, uh, and cotton, by the way, was one of the major crops, and wanted to make sure that they got the, the crops picked uh, for the balance of the year so they had every reason to delay you know, the implementation of, uh, of that general order. So eventually, again, Granger comes in. He comes in with over 2,000 troops, and, and the rest is history, and, and that's where we leave off. Wow. So, so uh, I, I mean, there, there's like so many missing pieces there that I don't know where to even get you going again because without the details of what the impact was, uh, people just basically, you know, gloss over these facts during the Civil War, but there were pointing applications to the societies that weren't in battle, you know, the people that were not bleeding, they were just reading gazettes and reading papers and mailers. What did it really mean to them, and what was the real impact? So these are good questions, Manny, and I encourage people, because you have these narratives that were recorded, you can actually read and listen to, you know, these interviews with people who... You know, we're slaves. We have we have the recordings, so you know it's easy for me to talk about it. But uh, you you can read some of the some of the primary sources, and this is another time for me to tell you. I've got all kinds of links on statutes and stories. So we're going to also talk about the Massachusetts Fifty Fourth, because I think that also connects to this story. We're going to talk about the Militia Act of eighteen sixty two, and when you go to the statutes and stories website, I have a blog which gives all kinds of stories, when I say stories, historical narratives that talk about events in American history that relate to the, the struggle with slavery and the, the implications of slavery and the legacy, which is not good, of slavery and you know how far we've come. So just to mention that people want to read some of these things, and then we'll talk about our, our, our later subjects, the Militia Act, the, the Massachusetts 54th. But let me just mention, because I'm mentioning the website, if, if people want to go to the website, you can read about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. I mentioned that in the blogs. I mentioned personal the Liberty Laws, which is how the North was resisting the Fugitive Slave Act. I have a blog about the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was the first civil rights law. Also, I mentioned the Peonage Act. If we have time, I can talk about that. Wait, wait, wait. What was the Peonage Act? I've never heard of that one before. Okay, so let, let's save this one for another night, or if we have time at the oh, end Just of the give hour. me a brief, a brief three words. What is the Peonage Act? 
Okay, so the Peonage Act of 1867, and I've got a, a link where I talk about the Peonage Act, uh, 1867, so this is after the Civil War, and, and the issue was what's referred to as debt servitude or debt slavery. So even though the slaves were, were no longer slaves because the Emancipation Proclamation gets enforced and the war is over, the North wins, the South loses, and you've got Reconstruction, what the South still tried to do and did probably for another hundred years was to to take the, the former slaves and uh, make them parents or debt slavery. In other words, if you owed money, then you could be forced to work. And I can go into some examples of how the Peonage Act tried to eliminate this debt servitude or debt slavery. But the idea was, and this, this was happening in the Jim Crow South, that the sharecroppers, people who didn't own the land, but they were forced to work on the land, uh, they would take out a loan. Next thing you knew, they owed money and they couldn't leave. They were forced to, to work on the crops and work on the field because they owed money. There's also a related idea of what was called the convict leasing system, right? So if you were convicted of a crime and in the Jim Crow South, you could be convicted for jaywalking and then they would trump up charges against you and uh, you know come up with reasons why you owed money and fines and court costs. And before you know it, you're working, uh, in effect, a slave. And, and this was a problem in the South. So the the Peonage Act tried to end this debt servitude, and we can go into more detail if we have time at the end of the hour, or go to the website and you can read all about the anti-Peonage Act of 1867. And the problem was that even though the law tried to make debt slavery, and it wasn't slavery, it was debt servitude, tried to make it illegal, that practice continued. In fact, I have a poem that was written, let me refer to it, by, by Langston Hughes. And Langston Hughes is talking about, you know, this horrible, barbarous situation of, of how people were basically forced to work. And it also it wasn't just African Americans in the South. It had similar issues with company towns and mining towns and Chinese laborers where, you know, they would pass money to you to get the transportation out to the mine. And then before you know it, they're charging you for overcharging you for the cost of your meals. And you can, it takes time for you to pay off the cost of the transportation in your housing, and you're basically forced to be an employee against your will. So so that's, that's some information you can read about on the Anti-Peonage Act, and if we have time, we can come back to that. But I, I think it's a, a really great story, because I want to get into the Massachusetts 54th Regiment and the Militia Act, which is also a great Lincoln story. So let me uh, take off now. Yeah, we, should have like a Li- we should have like a Lincoln month. Yeah, Lincoln is one of my favorite presidents, and uh, it's totally appropriate to talk about Lincoln when it comes to Juneteenth, because Juneteenth uh, is a result of you know winning the Civil War, and we'll do more episodes about Lincoln, because Lincoln played a, you know, there's not enough I can say positive about Lincoln. Uh, it was, he had difficult decisions to make, and, and just imagine, I'm going to paint the picture for you, right, that um, you know he had taken, and he wasn't really a full abolitionist, he just didn't want slavery in the territories, and, you know, I don't want to spend too much time, but there was a compromise in 1820 that you could not have slavery extending into the western areas, the territory that was gained from the Louisiana Purchase and then the Mexican War. So there was an agreement. You could not have slavery um, above a certain, um, I think it was a 36 parallel, and you could, have not, you could not have additional slavery in the, in the additional uh, territories. And that was unwound in the 1850s with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, where they had started allowing slavery in places where you couldn't have slavery before. And Lincoln was very opposed to the extension of slavery. And we can, we can talk about the Founding Fathers. Um, you know, one thing I will mention about Lincoln before we get into the Massachusetts 54th is he gave a very famous speech, the Cooper Union speech in 1860. In fact, I'm going to be blogging about some of Lincoln's speeches. So in 1860, Lincoln cites to 
Franklin, Hamilton, and Morris. And we've had shows where we talk in great detail about Hamilton, Morris, and Franklin. But one thing, when I say Franklin, that's Dr. Franklin or Benjamin Franklin. But one thing about those three framers, in particular, when I say framers, these are founding fathers, these are you know, framers of the Constitution. But one thing I love about Franklin, Hamilton, and Morris is they were some of the most noted anti-slavery advocates. You know, they, they, um, they, they especially Morris and Hamilton and, and Franklin from Philadelphia, uh, were big enemies of slavery. And what Lincoln makes the point in his Cooper Union speech that, yeah, Franklin, Hamilton, and Morris were the most noted anti-slavery men, that's his quote, in the Times. But Lincoln also argues in his 1854 Peoria speech, which he gave in the Illinois area, in Peoria, Illinois, that the other founders, even Washington and Jefferson, who were slave owners, still were not friends of slavery. Because, for example, the Constitution doesn't mention the word slave. You will not see the word slave or slavery in the Constitution, but it refer to persons held to service is how they uh, sugarcoat the, the name slavery or the word slavery. So Lincoln tried to argue, and uh, we've talked about historian Joseph Ellis before, and I, I'm a big fan of his book, American Dialogue. So Lincoln and Joseph Ellis make the point that these founders and not all of them, but but many of them. And I, I agree that Lincoln uh, is correct when he describes Washington and Jefferson as thinking that uh, you know, cancer, the slavery was a cancer, and the hope was that eventually the Constitution and the country would get rid of slavery. They just had to figure out a way of doing it. So I'm going to read here real quickly from Joseph Ellis in the book American Dialogue. So, And we're a little bit off the subject, and we will come back to the Massachusetts 54th. But Ellis argues in the book American Dialogue that Lincoln argued that the founding generation regarded it as a moral embarrassment that clearly defied the principles of the Declaration of Independence. In other words, Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, right? How could you reconcile slavery with the Declaration, which was written by Jefferson? So, again... He's right on the money. <laughs> yeah, so Ellis and Lincoln are saying that they considered slavery to be an embarrassment, which was a major reason why the delegates to Philadelphia refused to permit the toxic term of slavery to contaminate the language of the Constitution. And I'm just reading now from Ellis. As Lincoln described them, the founders thought of slavery as a cancer that they could not surgically remove without killing the infant American Republic in the cradle. In other words, they had to make compromises. Yeah, I mean, it's just politics is such a harsh reality. You just can't get all things at all times. And quite frankly... Forming the nation was much more important than abolishing slavery at that moment. I mean, you just couldn't do it. So uh, as much as we want to be human and moral, some people are not human or moral. I mean, some some decisions are business decisions. I mean, uh, I, I uh, the point I like to make is that I, uh, I was reading a book called 1493, where it takes away the emotions about slavery. It says clearly that the indentured servitude and the indentured servants that were coming out of Scotland and Ireland and parts of uh, the Netherlands were dying off fast when they got, not only did they have the, that long voyage, but they were dying of, of uh, malaria. And uh, the blacks were immune to it. So they started uh, the, the, the slave trade and, ex, and accelerated it because the, an, an indentured servant from Africa who ultimately became a slave, no doubt, um, maybe not even in that order, uh, was immune to malaria. So some of this stuff is non-emotional. It's kind of almost disgustingly cold business decision. So slavery dates back in America to the 1600s, and that's a, a long, horrible legacy. So let me just real, real quickly repeat or finish this paragraph from Ellis, because I think it tells you of you know his, his, his view of Lincoln, and I agree with it. So let me go back to what I was 
reading. So this is from American Dialogue, and the idea was that Lincoln thought of, and he's saying that the founders thought of slavery as a cancer, which they had to figure out a way of getting rid of it. So uh, throughout the trials and tribulations of America's bloodiest war, Lincoln maintained that he was acting as an agent of the founding generation. So Lincoln puts the mantle of the founders, puts the mantle of, of Washington and, and the founding fathers of, of Philadelphia. You know, he uses that cape, that mantle, that, that uh, he wraps himself in the, the patriotism of the founding generation so that the Union would speak for the true meaning of the American Revolution. And I think that was some of the genius of, of, of uh, of Lincoln, not pointing to the imperfections, but trying to make the best of what he had and to try to reclaim the legacy of freedom, reclaim the legacy of, of what it meant to, to be free, because we were, you know, we, we fought that war, we had that revolution against the British. So he's saying that the continuation, the fulfillment of American independence means getting rid of slavery. So that, that's the background. Now, when we talk about Juneteenth, and when we talk about the Massachusetts 54th, and I'm going to recommend a movie to people. So you can listen to me give the background, but if any of this interests you, and let me talk about the movie, and then we'll get more into the story. But there was a movie uh, probably 20 years ago or so, and when I hear when you hear some of these names, you're going to say, wow, how come I haven't seen this? So Denzel Washington plays a private from the Civil War. Morgan Freeman, uh, Carrie, and I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, her last name, uh, Carrie Ells, E-L-W-E-S, and Matthew Broderick are in the movie Glory, which is the story of the, the name of the regiment was the Swamp Angels. That was what they were referred to. And the Swamp Angels was the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. So let's now talk about the Massachusetts 54th and make sure you check out the movie Glory. So what's the deal with the Massachusetts 54th? And the quick answer is that, uh, let me go back to the Militia Act of 1792. Because people know that uh, you know my background is a lawyer, and I try to use these old laws to use the laws to teach American history, because you can't argue with the law. The law is what the law says. So I, I like to look and see what the old laws were, and use these to, to learn and to as a tool to learn American history. So the Militia Act of 1792 we talked about before, and that was a law under Washington that allowed for militias, because they didn't like the founding generation, didn't like standing armies. They thought standing armies led to problems, and they couldn't trust standing armies. They were worried that a standing army, meaning a full-time army, would be a threat to your freedom. So the, the, the country was set up to have a militias, because militias are citizen armies, right? So the problem was that the militia of the as it was set up, the Militia Act of 1792 only allowed for free, able-bodied white males to be in the militia. And this is in Washington's time, only free, able-bodied white males. So now the Civil War is happening, and Lincoln realizes that as the Union Army is heading south, and as we're taking over plantations and freeing slaves, that these slaves are ready and willing to fight for the country, because they have every reason. They're free, and they're patriotic, and they want to do what they can to free more slaves in the war. So these slaves are open freed, but the law did not allow African Americans to be in the military because that was the Militia Act of 1792. So what is what, what does Lincoln do? So this is the Militia Act of 1862. The Civil War starts in 1861. So the Militia Act of 1862, and I've got a link to it, and people can read it for themselves. And the language was, and I'm just quoting, that soldiers of quote African descent would be allowed to be members of the militia for the first time, and this is in 1862 under Lincoln, and this opens the door for African-American units. And initially, and there can be there's some controversy over who would be allowed to go into the militia, and uh, there are different provisions that you can interpret in different ways. But what it boils down to is, 
they, they weren't clear that soldiers, that African-Americans at the time, former slaves, could be members of the military. They thought maybe it's best to use them, you know, helping build and supplies. And What, um, what was the motivation for the blacks to join the movement? Was it just uh, 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 um, foodstuffs, fed, clothing? Was it pay? Was it guaranteed uh, additional freedoms? What was the motivation for the militia to, the blacks to join the militias? That's a, that's a great question. So the, the background, let me try to answer it this way. The law which I'm going to describe, which is the Militia Act of 1862, had a discriminatory pay structure. So for soldiers of African descent, who they thought would mainly be working behind the lines, doing supply, doing, you know, if you're a military, you need to have uh, you know, fortifications and the tents and the whole nine yards. So they your, your phone's going, oh, we're not hearing you. you got to stay closer to the phone. So the, the African soldiers, and this is the language in the statute, so soldiers of African descent would only be paid $10 a month minus a clothing allowance, but white troops, it specified, would get $12 per month and a clothing allowance. So there was a difference in pay, and Lincoln realizes that was a problem. So he fixed- you, hear, you hear that, ladies? You know, it happens, you know what I mean? So the original law, 1862, had a discriminatory pay structure, largely because they didn't know that the African-American soldiers would be working during combat, but they proved themselves, and that's going to be the story of the of the, the, the Massachusetts 54th that we're going to talk about. So Lincoln fixes the law in an 18, the updated version, let me get the, the dates right, so 1864 is when they passed another updated Militia Act, and the updated Militia Act um, provides for equal pay, and if you go to the website, you can read it for yourself. The you know people came in for the soldiers because if you're getting shot at, you should get paid the same amount of money. And now let's see. So it equalized the pay. And you asked the question, you know, why were some of these slaves willing to fight? And I, I think part of the reason was they realized that slavery was evil, and they can fight slavery. You know, the opportunity to uh, to free your family, you know, maybe in another city or another area, another part of the state. Uh, and also, the, the quick observation is that some of these soldiers, and this is going to be in the movie, and I didn't see all the movie, I've just read about it, but the many African-American regiments refused to take their $10, and remember, they also had to pay their clothing allowance, whereas white soldiers got $12 plus a clothing allowance. So some of the soldiers, the African-American former slaves, they refused to take the $10 when others were getting paid the 12 so, you know, that answers the question. They weren't just fighting for money. They were fighting for freedom and to free others. So- okay, here's a question for you that kind of uh, sets our conversation back a little bit, but this this just came, this uh, text just came to me. They wanted to know, did the British had poor laws that exported many British poor to our shores? And was that an impact on how the founding fathers perceived slavery? And the second question was, was were there different categories of slaves based on origin or their race? That you know was, that was a those tough. Those, those are two tough, three tough questions. Those are tough questions. So let me take the first, and then I'm not going to give a good answer to the second. But for the first question, uh, which is um, how, to, how to describe your first question. So well, so, I think the question has an answer in it that I'm not necessarily in agreement with. I don't believe there that there were poor laws that exported. The poor uh, British, I believe the poor British just fled because of famine and and their poor state of affairs. They just came to a new world because, you know, what the hell? What do I got to lose? That's how I always perceived it. You know, they accepted and signed indentured servitudes because they were poor Scottish or uh, convicts or same uh, the potato. I don't know if the potato famine was uh, of the same era, 
But I mentioned there were other types of uh, famines and disease that provoked people to go to the New World, period. I'm not necessarily in agreement that there were poor laws and these things were uh, these were results of human exportation. I don't believe that exportation had anything to do with it. So we're talking now about basically white slavery. And I think at different times, they actually look different. So originally, when the first settlers started coming over to Virginia, you know, this is at the time of uh, the Mayflower, etc. So this is in the 1600s. Um, you know, these are people that were escaping for religious reasons, or they wanted to get out of Europe because uh, they wanted a new opportunity. So the people came for different reasons. Georgia famously is a state where um, it was a penal colony, and if you decided to agree, go, if you agreed to go settle in these areas that weren't very developed in Georgia, you know, these, these new colonies, and then you wouldn't have to spend time in jail. And I, I don't know all the specifics about Georgia, but I know people were happy to take that opportunity to basically become free in Georgia as opposed to being in prison in England. Uh, when you mention the Irish... Oh, so then, so then I'm wrong that there are poor laws that allow, uh, allow to do what Castro did in Cuba, empty the jails. <laughs> How about that? I didn't know that. So the so British we were emptying their jails if you promised to go to the New World? Similarly with Australia, that there were advantages of going to Australia rather than being imprisoned in England if you go help settle. And uh, you know, maybe the sentence is a lot lower if you go to Australia or Georgia. So we'll do a show about that. In the yeah, that's very cool. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, so the potato famine, this is, if I'm not mistaken, I think in the 1850s, and uh, people can point out if I have the date wrong. But uh, here, you have the people would you know, people were starving to death, and they needed to get out because uh, there was a horrible famine of the potatoes, which was the main staple, the main crop in Ireland. Uh, and that was good news for us because a lot of Irish came to America and, you know, made America great. But, um, you know, there are different reasons people came at different times, but the big difference with, with slavery was that no one had a choice with slavery. And, uh, you know, that is a, a legacy of America that we're still grappling with. But I want to head over to the, the Massachusetts 54 because I think it's, I want to end on an uplifting note. And uh, Well, you, you, can't, know, you got 23 minutes of uplifting notes. You got plenty of notes or what? Okay, so. You got plenty we, of time, we, my friend. You might want to get into details on some of these subjects because you got 23, 24 minutes still. All right. So, and we can come back to some of these other loose ends. But uh, so the Massachusetts 54th is a regiment that was put together. Uh, and I mentioned how you have the 1862 Militia Act, which allowed for the first time African Americans to be part of the, the militia. And back then, the way that the militias worked is that the governors of the different states were in charge of setting up the, you know, the armed forces or the, the different militias for the different states. So the reason it's called the Massachusetts 54th, as you can imagine, is that this was a militia group that was formed in Massachusetts. And the second famous group, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the Kentucky. I'm going to get the number correctly. So this is the first Kansas, when I say Kentucky, it's Kansas, the first Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment. So these are the two first African-American groups or regiments of soldiers, the Massachusetts 54th and the first Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment. So these are groups of African-American soldiers that were volunteering, they're volunteers, uh, to fight for the Union. And this is in the the early 1860s. And what made the Massachusetts 54th very famous is Frederick Douglass is uh, an abolitionist. And if you go to New York, outside the New York Historical Society, they have a very nice statue of of Frederick Douglass. And there's been some good work by biographers who are giving more attention, which is deserved, to Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass, two of his sons, volunteered 
for the Massachusetts 54th, and other abolitionists volunteered for this regiment. So it was a, a very motivated and a very patriotic group of, um, of folks who volunteered in Massachusetts to fight and to try to help win the Civil War. And the, the, one of the main characters in the movie, the movie Glory, played by Matthew Broderick, and I'm making everybody's names correct. So the, the white soldier who was the commanding officer of the regiment, and we could talk about how it was white officers with African-American soldiers, and you know, we can have that conversation. But long story short, the, the, uh, his last name was Shaw. I want to get his name right. So this is Robert Gould Shaw. And I look to see if he's related to the poet Shaw, but it's Robert Gould Shaw. And he was Harvard-educated. He was a young son of abolitionists, and he agreed to command the, the unit. And it was unclear back then, you know, how loyal would these soldiers be, and they proved they were very loyal. So... Uh, you know, this was a unit that was put together in Massachusetts from all volunteers, and uh, I said they were referred to as the Swamp Angels. And keep in mind that when the Emancipation Proclamation took effect in January of 1863, the South considered this to be inflammatory. They considered this to be an outrage, that you're going to allow African Americans to fight in an army, to have guns, to kill, to kill whites. That was the way that the South reacted to the, to the Emancipation Proclamation. So Confederate generals declared that if, captured, if black soldiers who joined the Union, if they were captured, they would be summarily executed. That was what Confederate generals were putting out the message, that if we capture any black troops summarily executed, they also said that if you're a commanding officer of a white regiment, you will be put on trial for promoting insurrection. And the, tri the, the penalty for insurrection in the South was, uh, was a death penalty. So that's what the Confederacy was saying, that if we capture any black soldiers, and if we capture their commanding officers, we're going to kill them, summarily put them to death. And then, in fact, and this is now General Bedford Nathan Forrest, who is, uh, do some homework on General Bedford Forrest, but his full name is Bedford Nathan Forrest, if I remember correctly. Uh, his soldiers uh, captured approximately, um, I don't know the number, but hundreds of surrendering black soldiers were, were surrendering in Fort Pillow in Tennessee. And this is in April of 1864. And they were all massacred. So under the laws of war, when soldiers want to surrender, you're supposed to take their surrender. But uh, there was a massacre of hundreds of African-American soldiers by General Bedford Nathan Forrest, again, in April of 1864. And there's a very famous quote I want to read to you from Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist. And Frederick Douglass argued, and instead of me characterizing, I'm just going to read it to you. But Frederick Douglass argued, quote, that once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters, U.S., in other words, the insignia of the, of the medal and the, the letters on your uniform. So once we let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S., let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, there is no power on earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship. So for the abolitionists, allowing units with African Americans would prove that we should let these people be citizens. And it would take, if we talk about the amendments, the 13th Amendment freed the slaves. The 14th Amendment made African-American citizens. And it took a little bit of time for those amendments to be adopted. And then the 15th Amendment uh, allowed former slaves to vote. So, And we've done other shows talking about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So Frederick Douglass, his argument was, if you allow African-Americans to have funds, they will prove why they should be free. And they did. So I'm going to tell you real quickly about the Battle of Fort Wagner. And if you go to the website, Statutes and Stories, I've got a famous picture from that battle of the, of the Massachusetts 54th. Again, they're all volunteers. They were led by very young, enthusiastic, patriotic,
decisions. So the battle takes place, and there's a picture of it on the website, on July 18th, 1863. And this is the first time that a black unit led the charge in a battle. So July 18th, 1863, this all-American, all-African-American unit, which is the Massachusetts 54th Regiment, uh, they lost about 50% of their troops in this assault as they tried to take the, the fortification at Fort Wagner, which was heavily fortified. And back then, you sort of had trench warfare where you've got uh, you know, a combination of cannon, cannons and uh, gatling guns and the artillery. So this is a fort that defends the port of Charleston. And Charleston was a very important city in the South. So the port of Charleston was being defended by this Fort Wagner. The North wanted to take the fort so they could get in through the harbor and, and get the, wherever strategically they needed to go. It was dangerous to do it, but about 50% of the troops died and were injured in that assault on Fort Wagner. And uh, that's part of the story in the movie Glory. So the widely disseminated story of the 54th heroism helped reverse a lot of these stereotypes that African Americans you know, couldn't do X, Y, or Z. And I'm also going to tell you that... Um, there, there's, this is the first battle where a Medal of Honor was awarded to an Amer African-American. And as, as part of the story, um, you know, back then it was a big deal to carry the flag and to advance the troops. So the individual who was carrying, I don't know his name, but who was carrying and you know, moving ahead with the, with the flag uh, to rally the troops, so was shot. So another soldier, Sergeant William Harvey, picks up the, the flag and you know, runs forward. And, and the famous quote is, boys, the old flag never touched the ground. You know, rallying the troops so they advance on the fort, and eventually they take the fort. But you know, terrific losses or horrible losses. And then the, the soldier I told you about, Robert Shaw, who had volunteered, the Harvard graduate, to be the, the you know against the opposition. Others thought he was crazy to to be doing this this unit uh, because it was controversial at the time. Today, hopefully, it's not controversial. But Robert Shaw was killed, and that's the movie Glory with Morgan Freeman and Matthew Broderick and Denzel Washington. So that's the story of the Massachusetts 54th. I also have a picture of a famous statue and a series of engravings in Massachusetts, uh, which depicts this unit marching. So that's the famous Massachusetts 54th. And now you also know about the the first Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiments, which were the you know the first African American units in the Civil War, and by the end of the war, there were over 200,000 African Americans in the Union Army uh, who were helping win the war, and uh, you know it's a it's, it's a good story at the end of the day, but by by, by you know, no question about it, it was America's bloodiest you know any yeah because that, that number you just mentioned 200,000 that's that's a large number even today. Yeah, 200,000 African-American troops were deployed in the Army and Navy by the end of the Civil War and, and played a very important role in winning the war. Incredible, because um, I'll tell you, uh, how many percentage of those slaves, it would be a good number to ask, stayed up north or uh, never returned to the south after the war? I guess 100% of them, no? You know, those are also good questions, Manny, and... There was a later period of time where you had migration into the north, into the Midwest, into Chicago, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a good conversation, which I'm not totally equipped to talk about. But let me look and see. About 15 more minutes. So we, we've got time. We, we talked about Juneteenth. We talked about the Massachusetts 54th. We talked about the, um, the, the Kansas Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment, the first Kansas. So I also want to talk about some of these other um, 
we can talk more about the Peonage Act, and then I want to mention some of the other resources that we have on statutes and stories. And the Peonage Act, Manny, I think is part of the answer to your question, that the South needed its laborers. They didn't have to pay them before the Civil War, and the South wants to find ways, and this is the whole Reconstruction question. So Reconstruction was how do you rebuild the South, because uh, we could talk about uh, certain generals in particular marching on Atlanta, burning everything they could. And, you know, unfortunately, modern war in the last 200 years uh, isn't just soldiers marching around shooting at each other. It's it's total war. So it's, it's you know, your industrial base fighting against – it's all in, in other words. In the old days, war – I don't think it was ever fun, but in the old days, war was a lot different. But, uh, you know, in the modern war, uh, you know, it decimates civilian populations. So the South was decimated. The South was burned. Uh, you know, the South had lost its economic base, and the northern troops stayed in the South because many in the South wanted to reimpose slavery. So we had to keep under Grant, and he was in charge of that initially with other northern generals uh, to maintain control of the South. And uh, this gets into this issue of Reconstruction, which is a very interesting period of American history. And uh, we have to do more shows about Reconstruction and, and giving the former African-American slaves the right to vote and uh, enforcing the right to vote. Because as we know, it wasn't until the 1960s and and that's a whole separate conversation about the right to vote. So what I want to talk about now, and we mentioned it earlier, is the Peonage Act of 1867. So I'm going to read to you from this important law that was passed in 1867 but was not fully implemented. And when I talk about the Peonage Act, it's not just African Americans in the South. It's also the Native Americans in the New Mexico Territory. So you had, and, you know, let's do a show another night about uh, the, you know, the Native Americans, the First Nation, and, and the Southwest. And under Spain and under Mexico, uh, the Native populations in many respects were slaves. So the Peonage Act says not only can't African Americans be held to involuntary labor, but also in the New Mexico Territory, which became the states of Arizona and New Mexico, uh, similarly the, the, the Native Americans and others who were being forced to work on farms should also be free. So it's a very short act. It's only two, only two sections, and I've got all kinds of links so people can read, read it for themselves. This is passed by the 39th Congress in 1867, and I want to read you some of the language. And again, the idea was that if a person doesn't want to work, they cannot be forced to be an employee because freedom means you can work where you want and you can move where you want. And that gets to your earlier point about people moving north. So I'm reading now from the Peonage Act of 1867, which says as follows, an act to abolish and forever prohibit the system of peonage in the territory of New Mexico and other parts of the United States. And Section 2 describes how it shall be the duty of all persons in the military or civil service, so in other words, the military and governmental employees in the territory of New Mexico to aid, and New Mexico wasn't just the state of Mexico, to aid in the enforcement of the foregoing section of this act, and all persons who obstruct or attempt to obstruct in any way or interfere with the enforcement of this act shall be, when it gives what the penalties were, but it took a law from Congress, and it was for many more years, this was not fully enforced. So let me give you examples of what peonage did. It forced employees, and this is not just African Americans, but primarily African Americans. It compelled them to work against their will. This is the problem with peonage, and there are places in the world where you still have peonage. So peonage is a situation where 
I mean, let's give the specifics, where you're forced to work against your will. And what this did is it re-enslaved the system of peonage, reimposed a corrupt, you know, alternative version of slavery in the Jim Crow South. Uh, so it's referred to as the convict lease system. And there are, there are historians who tried to quantify that in Alabama and in Mississippi and in Georgia, as many as one-third of all sharecropping farmers. So if you're not owning the land, and you have to, you have to give a share of the crops to the owner of the land, so they say about one-third of the sharecropping farmers were being held against the will. So not only did they have to share the crops, but they couldn't leave the farms. And this is in around the year 1900. About a third of all sharecroppers were forced to stay on their farm. Uh, and this was also used in the mining industry, in the railroad and lumber industries. And uh, there came to be a situation where you had what were referred to as criminal surety statutes, where an employer could pay the fine for an indigent employee, and then the employee had to work, continue working, to pay for the fines that had been paid by their employer. And then you had situations where corrupt government employees would lose the debt records you know, because they wanted you to keep working. So even though your wages were paying off what your debt was, uh, you know, they were cooking the books, so to speak. And, uh, you know, your, your records would be lost or your period of, of if you did a breach of your contract, then they could extend the period that you were forced to work. So there was all kinds of corruption in this criminal surety system. And if we had more time, I would talk about, and we've, we've talked a little bit about it in other nights, that there are famous cases that were adopted in the 1870s by the U.S. Supreme Court. And one of these nights we'll talk about the slaughterhouse cases from 1873. And uh, Well, I mean, you got nine more minutes. You might want to talk about the slaughterhouse cases. That sounds gory. I think the audience would like it if you have the info. Okay, so what is a slaughterhouse? A slaughterhouse is, you know, for example, in Chicago. Chicago is famous for, you know, the, the cattle drives would bring the cattle to be slaughtered, um, you know, in Chicago, which is a major, uh, you know, it's got access to the Great Lakes, so you can get boats and transport the meat and the steaks and the hamburger all, all around the Great Lakes and uh, to, the, to the east. Right, so the slaughterhouse cases were situations where you had these slaughterhouses and the, the blood would run into the streets and you know, there the, the, the slaughter and all kinds of animals. So the issue in the slaughterhouse cases... You've got to get closer to your phone. I we're, we're missing you. Okay, so 1873 time frame, the issue in the slaughterhouse cases had to do with what constitutes involuntary servitude. And when we look at the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery. Right? And the 14th Amendment has the definition of equal protection. The 14th Amendment has this, this concept of privileges and immunities. And the 14th Amendment has due process, applies those protections to the to all of the states. Right, And that's one of the results of the Civil War, that the states can no longer deny equal protection, due process, and you have to have the privileges and immunities of citizenship. So one of the issues in the Slaughterhouse case, and there were several, was what does slavery mean for people who are being forced to work in these in these mills and these slaughterhouses. And let me read a little bit about the case. So the Supreme Court recognized in 1872, and it's a very controversial decision, recognized the definition of involuntary servitude comprehended, quote, something more than slavery in the strict sense and included surfage, vassalage, I can't even pronounce this, villainage, peonage, and other forms of compulsory service. So good news is that the court, the case recognizes that slavery doesn't just mean slavery, it also means when you're being forced to work against your will. So that's a good part of the decision. And as a result, the court held that the 13th Amendment applies to Mexican peonage in the Southwest and to the Chinese labor system, where Chinese employees were being forced to work on the, on the railroads. So that's good. The, slavery, the, the, the slaughterhouse case holds that slavery is a broad term, and if you're forced to work against your will, that's covered by the 13th Amendment. But that, that uh, when it came to uh, the Chinese railroad workers, 
that applied to uh, Canada as well, no? So I, I don't disagree with you. I, I uh, when I was in Qu- uh, when I was in Calgary, I was up in a, a place called Banff, up in the mountains. But the town of Calgary, in between Calgary and Banff, there was a beautiful city of Japanese villages and gardens, and the railroad apparently ran through there. And the queen had a huge, a huge castle. In fact, two huge castles in a place called Whistler. And uh, that's why I asked, because since the British royalty was, you know, prevalent in this part of town, I can see that this law would apply to the Chinese who were building that railroad there. So, Manny, I don't disagree that it's very possible. that I'm just trying to impress an attorney, you know, what can I say? I'm just a layman trying to impress the attorney, you know what I mean? So some of those employees may have stayed. They saw the Chinese countryside and loved it. So I wouldn't be surprised. But these American laws would only apply in America. And you know, the problem was... No, this was in Calgary. You're, you're saying Chinese... You're confusing me. You're, the Chinese fell in love with Canada and the New World, I guess, because they came to lay the, the, the railroad for the Queen in this part of Calgary, which may may have included uh, you know Washington State and Oregon, for all I know. I'm not, I don't have knowledge of where this railroad track was going. Uh, but I wonder if these these acts applied to them as well, since you mentioned it. Yep, so I, I agree with you, and I don't know the specifics, but it's very possible that the railroads were using Chinese laborers in America and in Canada. But, but the cases I'm talking about would only apply in America, you know, not in uh, not in Canada. But they may have similar requirements and similar restrictions. But you know, the the big observation here is that this slaughterhouse case from the 1870s, which you learn about in law school, the good news was it interpreted slavery broadly to cover forced labor. But the problem with the slaughterhouse cases, which have since been overturned, is they had a very narrow definition, and this is sort of convoluted for people who don't want to get into the weeds. But uh, the slaughterhouse cases are problematic is they put a very limited ruling and a very limited meaning, a limited interpretation on the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the, of the 14th Amendment. So today, when we talk about privileges and immunities, it doesn't really have much of an effect because privileges and immunities has been, has been interpreted to only apply to federal citizenship, not state citizenship. So the main protections now are the Equal Protection and the Due Process Clause, and the Privileges and Immunities Clause has sort of been interpreted to be um, you know, very limited. Uh, so that's the reason why the Slaughterhouse case is it's sort of important historically. But let me give some more examples before we run out of time. So another case that came about, this is in 1905, is the Quiet case. And people can read about this on Statutes and Stories. This is when the Justice Department, during the Progressive Era, starts enforcing some of these peonage laws and says, hey, we can't force people to work if they don't want to work. And this was, a, this was actually a case out of Florida, the Quiet versus U.S. case. And there was a Florida statute which permitted, this was legal in Florida, permitted the imprisonment of workers who breached their employment contracts. And if you still owed money to your employer, so you may have signed up, as we said, they give you an advance. Now, they pay you 100 bucks to come work for the company and to cover your, your lodging and your expenses to get to the location where you're going to be working in the sugar, you know, the sugar crops or whatever it might be in, in southern Florida or to work on the Florida Railroad. And you decide it's too, you know, backbreaking and you can't do the work anymore. If you still owed money, they could force you to keep working for the company. So this quiet case, quiet versus United States is testing the boundaries, again, of what the slavery means. And this is the issue of, you know, can people be forced to work against their will? And the answer is that we've made it very clear today, no, you can't. But there was a dissent in that case by Justice Harland, and this is the Clayton versus, uh, quiet, rather, quiet versus U.S. So I want 
people to get a chance if you want to read it. So Justice Harlan, he goes into a lot of detail describing the situation of debt servitude where people, and these are white, these are Chinese, these are African-Americans, were forced to work out their debts. And he describes the barbarities of the worst kind in that dissent. And his Justice Harlan, and people know that, you know, the majority opinion or those that uh, make the decision and that win the case, the dissents are where the justices get to say why they disagree. And often a dissent from 100 years ago has now become the law today if a case gets overturned. So I want to go out by reading this poem by Langston Hughes, who's an African-American poet, and he may have had the quiet case in mind when he wrote this, this poem. So the poem goes, and I'm only giving a selection from it, that justice is a blind goddess. This is a thing to which we poor are wise. Her bandage hides two festering sores that once perhaps were eyes. So, you know, if justice wasn't really blind, if people could be forced to work to pay off uh, a debt under circumstances which uh, amounted in many ways to slavery. But the good news is we, we've moved away from that system that the anti-peonage law now is enforced. And now you, know, you, you can be in prison for, for trying to imprison somebody else. And I go into more detail on the website. Uh, so we, we have good laws that now protect us. And um, you know, the analysis is it was referred to as the ever-turning wheel of servitude, that people they would get fines, there would be court costs, court costs uh, you know, and uh, this was used by, uh, you know, by unscrupulous employers, this ever-turning wheel of servitude uh, to find ways of forcing someone to keep working. So that, that gives a little bit of the history, how the, the, the legacy of the Civil War continued in the South for many years. And this is the conversation about how America, two steps forward, one step back, we're making progress. And 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 the final comment would be, democracy is messy, plain and simple. And Republican democracy reduces the mess, but nevertheless, you got to clean up the store. And we're two hundred and something years later, and Americans have got to realize that we cannot allow this to turn into a, a white black issue. It's over now. Uh, blacks have to come with comfort to the fact. That the, the 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 horror stories uh, are just as horrible in the in the era in which Adam is describing, and guess what? I think there's been a big improvement, and I believe that the African American, I don't want to even call them. I just learned recently that they don't even want to be called African American. They want to be called Black Americans because most of them don't know hill of beans about Africa, and um, I just saw these two twins on a podcast. Uh, black guy's really strong, and he said, don't call me African-American. I'm an American. I know about American history. And uh, I think uh, what Adams clearly defies with these militia, man, um, they were patriotic for their reasons, for our reasons, for all our reasons. And we all just got to embrace the very fact that the, the story is a sad story, but my God, we can't erase these stories and uh, we can't eliminate these statues, and we can't rename these military bases because people are offended. Ben Carson said it best. You know, only communists erase history. Uh, demo- uh, democracy learns from it. So I'll leave you with just that one here on the Statues and Story Show. Adam, please give your website information again so that people can can uh, go back to your site. And uh, that's the end of our show, basically. So, Manny, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. 
I'm also pointing out that we can debate some of the comments you made, and that there are different opinions, obviously, on that subject. But the good news is that there is a holiday coming up, which I want people to appreciate, which is Juneteenth, which is on Friday, June 19th. And feel free to go to statutesandstories.com and read all about uh, some of this history. And uh, the history is relevant today, and it's, it's important that people understand some of the history. But at the end of the day, it's a great country. We are thankful to be Americans, and uh, good days are ahead. So thanks, everybody, and have a great night. Take care and stay free.